want to get you up to speed to where we're at here in John chapter 6. We're at a time in the, the life and ministry of Jesus where he had been doing so many miracles. Uh, when John was in prison, and he was a little bit frustrated because the timetables of Jesus doing things, and uh, the timetables didn't seem to match up with what John had expected. And so John, while he's in prison, he begins to be discouraged, and he sends some of his disciples to go and ask Jesus, hey, are you the coming one, or should we look, to and look for another? And there in Matthew chapter 11, verse 4 and 5, Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That his very works were testifying of who he is. And all over the Galilean countryside, people were beginning to become aware of who he was and they were beginning to make these conclusions for themselves. This is the king of Israel. When the Pharisees challenged him on what authority he had to say the things that he was saying, he simply pointed to his miracles. In John 5, verse 36, he says, But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to, do, to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. So his very works were testifying of the fact that he had been sent by God. And even though the Pharisees, they hated him for it, it was something that they had already known. It was something that they already couldn't shake. They couldn't deny it. We saw there in John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So everyone was beginning to be aware. Everyone was starting to know that this wasn't just some man from Galilee. That no one could do these things unless God was with him. They'd never heard anyone talk like him. They had never seen anyone do the things that he had been doing. And in their hearts, they're becoming aware, this is the king of Israel. But here in the gospel of John, We've been seeing some actually like kind of unexpected miracles. In John chapter 2, we saw how Jesus, there at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, when they had ran out of wine, how Jesus turned water into wine. Now what's so amazing about this is that he completely changed the natural order and physical makeup of the water. Now, you might say, well, you know, the main ingredient in wine is water. But there's nothing in the water by itself that gave it the ability to become wine. Jesus changed the physical makeup and the natural order. It, it was one thing, and it had become another thing. What a miracle. What a sign. And signs point to something, you know. Then in John chapter 6, we've seen him do a similar thing. Where the multitudes were there. 
And they've been following him for such a long time because they're curious about the works that he's doing. They're hearing him speak. It's gotten late. They're hungry. And they're a long ways away from anywhere where they could actually go buy food. And there with this hungry multitude, five loaves and two small fish. And he multiplied those five loaves and those two small fish so that more than 5,000 were fed. Now, we always hear it called the feeding of the 5,000. But I keep saying more than 5,000 were fed. And why do I say that? Well, because Matthew 14 tells us. It says, so all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 basketfuls of fragments that remained. Now, those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides the women and the children. So it wasn't just the dudes that had lunch that day. The ladies and the kids were fed and they were filled. That's a lot of people. Again, in feeding 5,000 with five loaves, more than 5,000, right? If feeding these families with five loaves and two small fish, he completely changed the natural order. And he took the bread and the fish beyond their physical makeup. Like there's nothing in the bread that could multiply itself. There's nothing in the fish that could work that miracle. And then we see him afterwards working a similar miracle where the people are wanting to make him king. He takes his disciples, sends them out into a boat. Remember, into a boat, which they don't want to be in. Into the dark, which they don't want to be in. Into a storm, which they don't want to be in. And they're toiling for hours on end. They're halfway in the middle of the lake. And in the middle of the storm, Jesus comes walking to them on the water. He completely changes the natural order. And he makes the water react to him in a way that's beyond its own physical makeup. Like it's physical, like the physics of the water are not in a way that any time in Israel would they be able to support the weight of a man. Now you might say, well, if I go up into the Kodiak, you know, somewhere in the Arctic, Well, then water can freeze, but we're talking about the Sea of Galilee. It gets cold, but it doesn't freeze. And here comes Jesus walking on the water. And then, then there's another miracle. Unexpected. Because you remember, they're toiling They're in the the boat, which they don't want to be in, in the dark, which they don't want to be in, in the storm, which they don't want to be in. They've been toiling all night, and they're tired, and then they think they saw a ghost, so they're freaking out, and then Jesus says, it's I, be of good cheer. And after all the miracles with, you know, Peter walking on the water, it says they still had three miles left to go. With three miles left to go, As soon as he was in the ship, immediately 
they were on the land on the other side of the lake. <laughs> I love how John Phillips puts it. He says, the Lord annihilated the distance and abolished the time. He annihilated the distance between where they were and where they wanted to go, where all it took was for them to receive him into the boat, and they were there. Like, it would take time to get there, but as soon as he was in the boat, boom. So time and distance, out of the way. Again, changing the natural order of things. Jesus had been working those miracles that demonstrated his ability to change the natural order and the physical makeup. Change nature, change limit, change physical property, change matter, change space, change time. What kind of man is this? And now all of these miracles are about to find their place in his preaching. Look with me in verse 22 to verse 25. He says, On the following day, when the people were standing on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread. After the Lord had given thanks... When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? <laughs> now remember, it was just the day before where more than 5,000 people on the eastern shore there near Tiberias by the Sea of Galilee, these 5,000 people were fed bread and fish, which were miraculously multiplied by this kid's lunch. They saw Jesus um, put the disciples into the boat. It says there, remember in Matthew, he constrained them. Like they didn't want to, but he made them get in the boat. They saw the disciples go on their way. He saw, they saw Jesus go up the mountain. And so here it is now, the next day. And I'm certain that they're expecting Jesus to show up just like he had been the day before and preach some more. I mean, after all, things are starting to get exciting. The people are convinced. The last thing we read was that they were about to take him and make him their king. Like, why would you leave that kind of success? And so they're thinking, okay, well, he's going to show up. And they waited. Wait, what time's this service supposed to start? Well, I heard this was the 10 o'clock service. Uh, it's getting kind of late. No, but like, there's not even a worship team. Maybe we're in the wrong place. And finally, they got to a place where they're like, he's not here. Is he up the hill? No, he's not. Where is he? And so, they set out looking for him. They got into boats. Getting into boats means that they would have had to go town to town, pull up in the, the, at the dock. Hey, you guys see the, 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 ra the rabbi, the master? 
Have you seen, you know, Jesus of Nazareth? Has he come here? Well, he's been here before. The Bible said that he had, had preached in all the synagogues of Galilee. But he's been here before, but we haven't seen him. We haven't seen him for a while. So he didn't come here last night. Nope. Okay, on to the next spot, on to the next spot. They couldn't just, like, send him out in groups and, like, use their cell phones as, you know, hey, how's it looking over there? Oh, no, it's, it's not. It's not happening. You know? I mean, like right now, like we, there was rumor as of last night that there was supposed to be a south swell coming in. So I'm thinking, okay, after service, we'll go surf. But Marvin went and checked out the waves, and he said, there is no waves. He sent me pictures. You see, if that would have been in Jesus' day, I'd have had to go all the way over there to go see myself. Or Marvin would have to walk all the way back to come and tell me. <laughs> so I have to, back in those days, you had to learn the hard way. Well, eventually, they start showing up at Capernaum. And as they show up in Capernaum, they find Jesus. And they're puzzled. How did he get there? How did it happen? That was their question to him. Rabbi, like, how did you get here? When, when did you get here? Like, those two questions are kind of combined in the one. How and when did you come here? And Jesus ignores both questions. <clears throat> I always think, if somebody asks you a question, answer their question. Unless it's a dumb question. Or unless you have something better. And here are the questions that they ask. How did you get here? When did you get here? Look, I'm here and that's a given. But what's really interesting isn't it? How and when I got here, what's really interesting is why you're here. And so he turns their question from the how and when to the why you. Because of the commitment, right? The time, the seeking. It wasn't just a, like, hey, I think he's over here. Let's go. I got the email. Like, they had to go look. So not... The when and how for him, but the why for them. Look with me in verse 26. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And remember, they wanted to know how he got there, when he got there, and Jesus doesn't answer those questions. Instead, he, he redirects the question, turns it back on them. Here, you guys, look at You guys have traveled all the way from Tiberias. You've been going from town to town, and now here it is. You found me. Just the fact that you came looking for me and all the work that you put into it, now that's something. Why are you here? Well, let me tell you. What were, why were they seeking? What were they seeking? He puts his finger right on the true motives of their heart. And he says that they hadn't come because they saw the miracles. They didn't come because they were wanting spiritual things. Their thoughts went no higher than their physical needs. He said, you came looking for me because I gave you a free lunch. 
You came because you got stuff out of me. You got free stuff. You came for the swag. You came for the merch. You came for the food. But you didn't come for me. Hmm. All they knew was that when they went hungry, Jesus had fed them. And that's all they wanted was just that. Sadly, there are entire movements within Christianity that have promoted that as the extent of their pursuit of Jesus. Seek Jesus because he'll give you your money. Seek Jesus because he'll give you your health. Seek Jesus because he'll give you the thing that you want. You want that job? You seek Jesus. And it's all superficial. It's all temporary. It's all based on all I want is the gifts. Jesus is saying, you're not seeking me. You're seeking my stuff. And it's sad that that becomes this super shallow expression of Christianity. Just figure out what you want and name it and then claim it. And I'll tell you, Jesus rebukes that attitude here. Where you seek the gift, but not the giver. Where you seek his hand, but not his face where you seek him only for what he can do rather than seek him because of who he is. We need to go deeper. We need to go deeper. They had no idea that there was a lesson in the lunch, that there was a meaning in the meal. Jesus begins to point out not only theirs, but ours as well. He begins to point out our deepest need. Like, we see our stuff. We see the things that we have. We know the things that we want. We understand the things that we need. And by the way, God understands those things too. But if we're not careful, stuff will become all that we see. And then we begin to seek Jesus only for the stuff. And to have our physical needs met. To have our earthly desires granted. And I'm telling you, like, okay, on the one hand, please, don't get me wrong. God is so merciful. And he wants you to cast all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. You know what your finances are. And I'll tell you, money isn't everything. But there's some times within life that even though it's not everything, it sure does feel like a whole lot, right? And the Lord knows that. And it's good to seek him for those things. He even says it in the model prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. So it's not like it's a bad thing to seek the Lord for your needs. He says in everything, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's okay to ask the Lord for these material things, but it's another thing to only seek him for that. To only seek him when you need help. I talk to people like, hey, like, 
Can I tell you about Jesus? Oh, I know Jesus. Like if it wasn't for Jesus, I'd be dead oh, so many times. I, I, was, I was in a car accident. I said, Lord Jesus, help me. And he helped me. And now where are you doing? Um, you know, I haven't been to church in a long time. <laughs> you ever read your Bible? No. When's the last time you pray? I don't know. Maybe when last time I almost got in an accident. You call that a relationship, man? It's like a genie. It's not your genie. It's not your, uh, the wish granter. Wouldn't that be a weird song? Like, you are here. <laughs> wish granter, happiness maker, feel gooder person in the sky. Like, that would be a stupid religion. <laughs> but sadly, we follow into it. He is the Lord. He is worthy of all honor and glory and power. It's all his. Like we are called to serve him, not the other way around. And to our tendency to just get so focused on all the temporary and all of the stuff, Jesus says in verse 27, he says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Right away, he's making a distinction between there's food that perishes and there's food that endures to everlasting life. And at once, this opens up a discussion to where, okay, well, if there's food that perishes and the food that endures to everlasting life, then how do I receive that food? There's this stuff and there's that stuff, and I want that one. How do I get that one? Now, first of all, like, there's a parallel between this and what he's meeting the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Where now he's talking on the issue of food, but in John 4, it was on the issue of water. Where Jesus, he's like, you drink of this water and you will thirst again. But if anyone drinks of the water that I give, he'll never thirst again. Give me that water then, Lord. How do I receive that one, that description? And on both cases, though, they miss the metaphor. They're missing the metaphor. They just think, oh, you're talking about some kind of special preservative? Food that just lasts forever? What is this, like a new Twinkie? There's a meaning in the metaphor. Just like the water. He's not talking about like some like, you know, oh, you know, it's like a built-in drinking fountain. It just like supplies your thirst right from your own mouth. Like, wow. Even Nicodemus, when Jesus was speaking about being born again, he missed the metaphor altogether. There's a contrast between this, there's a warning, like do not labor for the food that perishes. And then there's the promise, 
like, but for the, the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Okay, so how do you get this one? The Son of Man will give you. How do you get the one that perishes? You work for it. There's what you work for, and it perishes. And there's that free gift that endures to everlasting life. The one is earned. The other is free. The one perishes. The other one lasts forever. And question yourself, like, are you stuck on the one? Or have you been set free to live in and enjoy and receive the other? It is the Son of Man who gives everlasting life because God the Father has set his seal on him. And from that then in verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? I do not know what is wrong with us. But man, humans, we really want to do something for the sake of our own salvation. Anything except receive it as a free gift. No, 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 no. Put me to work. Give me something complicated. Like, give me the spell or the program. Give me the step-by-step step so that I can, you know, follow the process and then all of a sudden receive the finish line of everlasting life. The Jews demanded, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? It almost reminds me of, of Naaman, the leper, in 2 Kings. He was sent to Elisha, and uh, he sent messengers to Elisha to be like, hey, I, I, I have leprosy. Um, I, I know that God has been working through you in a wonderful way. Um, what do I need to do? I, I, I want to be healed. And Elisha sent back to him that all he had to do was just this simple act of faith to just go and wash himself in the Jordan. And he became furious at that. What? Just simply wash in the Jordan? I have so many rivers in my own hometown and each one of them is better than that old river. But good thing he had servants that were able to talk some sense into him. In 2 Kings 5, 13, and his servants came near and spoke to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Like if he would have made some complicated thing, okay, now here's what you do. You, walk, you hop on one foot all the way to the grocery store and then you find the most rotten orange and you make a tea out of it. And then you find the Duterra lady. And I found her. No, <laughs> and, and, and you do the magic mixture. And then, or like my kids, they just had me watch, um, we just watched Nacho Libre, right? You climb the cliff and you eat the eagle egg. And you get the eagle powers. We'll do all the crazy stuff. All the complicated things. Oh, ooh. Yeah, now that sounds like I can get behind that one. But people want salvation on their terms because they can't even dare to believe salvation on God's terms. 
Salvation on our terms feeds our pride. I've done my part. And now, since I've done my part, I can sit back, I can gloat, I can boast. It's interesting that every false religion has its own answer to the question, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Every error, even within true religion, has an answer to that question. What must I do to work the works of God? Islam has its answer. You know, I mean, like beautiful people, I honor sometimes, I, I, I honor their, their ethic at times. Like in our world, it's like so nutty and be like, man, like, sometimes you go over there and you go like, well, like, you haven't lost your mind as much as we've lost ours. But they have their answer. What must they do to work the works of God? Well, they have their fasting at Ramadan where you can't even drink water until sundown. That must be hard, man. You're living in the desert, not drinking water till sundown. Like, you're probably so dizzy by like four o'clock. Oh, this, this is a hard fast. You know, and then every time the minarets start chiming in with all of their like singing, la, 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 you know, they roll out their, their prayer mats and they make sure that they're praying towards Mecca multiple times a day. And if you want to make it to heaven, you have to do Hajj at least one time in your life, which you know, you either go to Mecca, you go to Medina, or you go to Al-Aqsa. But Al-Aqsa doesn't actually count. It's just one of the three, but it's not really one of the three. You still have to, if you go to Al-Aqsa, you still have to go to either Mecca or Medina in Saudi Arabia. And if you don't do that, you're not going to heaven. So what must I do to work the works of God? Well, you got to do all these things. You got to do those things. You got the Hindus. Sometimes we think that Hindus are just like, you know, they're just lighting incense and oming out and doing fancy yoga. But that's not the case at all. There's people over there throwing their children into the Ganges because they can't atone for their guilt. They're torturing themselves. You know, they're, they're, they're putting themselves through insane amounts of self-inflicted pain to work the works of God. Like even people within our own family, there's branches of like the Roman Catholic Church that have, have veered off to the point of like, you know, where penance and, you know, putting their confidence in like lighting the right amount of candles and, and doing the right amount of things. You know, I mean, and I, I'm saying this is within our family, but they've been hijacked into thinking that if they put their confidence in the scapular that they wear over their shoulder that says, if anyone dies wearing this blessed scapular, they'll escape the fires of hell. You're like, wait, no, that's not where my salvation is found. That's not the works of God. That's the works of man. With a label on it. If we pray the right prayers or, you know, if, if we, we pay the right amounts. And it's sad because we can so quickly put our focus on the things that we can look at, we can be confident in, and then we can boast about it. Like, or at least just sit easy. Like, look, I've, I, I've, I've done the thing. 
They all have their things to do. But Jesus is different, and Jesus answers different. What must we do to work the works of God? Look at verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God. You believe on him whom he has sent. The fact that they asked what work should we do shows us that they understood enough to know that they wanted to be right with God. Remember the rich young ruler. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? They, they have this idea, like, I want to be right with God. But they sadly so quickly put their trust in their own strength. And they ask, what do we do? They want to work the works of God. Now, let me back up real quick, okay? Christianity is full of love and good works. So don't ever think, well, you're into all these works and stuff. No, like, uh, if you ever just typed in, like, in a Bible search, justified by faith, you'll come up with a verse in the book of James that says, we see that a man is not justified by faith alone, but also by works. But you got to realize, what's it talking about? It's not talking about being made right in the sight of God. God knows that he's made me right. But with people, I can say, I have faith, but I have nothing to show for it. It's just words. But if I have, say, I have faith, and then you see my works, you'd be like, yeah, you got faith. Because you can't see my faith. You can only see its results. Just like I can't see, you can't see my calorie intake, but you can see its results. You know, like, that's the reality. It's going to, so for a believer within Christianity, it's this. It's you do good works not in order to be right with God. You do good works because you love God and he has made you right in his sight. Something you could have never deserved. The motive for the good works is love. It's not in order to be loved. It's because I am loved. It's not in order to be accepted. It's because I am accepted. And now I love what God loves. And I love who God loves. And I want to bless them just like God wants to bless them. So if you say that you have a Christianity that's void of works, you don't have Christianity. If you have a Christianity that's void of change, like you don't have Christianity. But if you're looking to the things that you do to have a right standing in the eyes of God, you don't have Christianity. Deception is one of the cruelest tricks of Satan. He's a liar. Been a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. You read 1 John chapter 1 and the way that even people can get so caught up in the delusion, right? Where you can get to a place where you say like, I, I don't have sin. You lie. You deceive yourself. Then you start to tell other people like, no, I'm, I'm not. I don't have sin. So the, the lie you tell yourself the, is the lie you start to tell other people. And then eventually you turn against God like, no, you're the one that's telling the lies here. And you bring it against the Lord, this world of illusion. 
the people, they get to a place where they think they're right when in reality they're so wrong. Most people who are lost, if you ask them, for the most part, they're going to say that they're pretty good people. It's kind of like that, the way of the master method of evangelism, right? Like, hey, uh, you have any church background? You believe you're going to go to heaven when you die? And people, most people would say, well, yeah, I believe so. Okay, okay. So if you were to stand there before the Lord and he used to say, why should I let you into my heaven? Like, what would you say? Well, like, I'm, I'm a basic, would you tell him you're basically a good person? Yeah, I've tried to be a good person. And then the good person test, right? Oh, you're a good person? Let's see. You know, have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah, who hasn't? I didn't ask you who hasn't. I just asked, have you ever told a lie? Yeah, well, what does that make you? And people want to be cute. They go, human? Let me just tell you, like, deception isn't a necessary part of the human experience. Like, you have to be a liar. Like, what does that make you? It makes me a liar. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Have you ever used God's name as a cuss word? Have you ever used God's name to express any kind of emotion rather than just glory to God and who he is? Well, that, that makes you a blasphemer. Have you ever been so mad in your heart against somebody? Jesus says that if you hated your brother, you've already murdered him. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust in your heart? Jesus says if you did, you've committed adultery with her already. Yet you say you're a good person, but according to the Bible, you are a lying, blaspheming, murderous adulterer. That doesn't sound like a good person. That's only four commandments. We can keep going. You see, it's not just some people. It's all people. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. It's not just like the ones that you don't like. It's each and every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's word tells us that we are a loved people. We are a loved people. But God's word also tells us that we are ungodly people. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I know how, I love how God's response to our wickedness and to our rebellion against him wasn't to just like shower down judgment. I love that. Remember when the, the city of Samaritans, they wouldn't receive Jesus because they saw that he was on his way to Jerusalem? It tells us in Luke 9, verse 54 through 56, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? 
But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Lord, these guys! Let's throw fire on them! Call it down, Lord! We've seen your miracles to heal. Let's see them, your miracles to wreck things. I want to see it! And let's start with the Samaritans anyway. I didn't come to wreck men's lives. I came to save them. Hmm. That's the kindness and love of God our Savior to the undeserving. Remember when the woman who goes from relationship to relationship, looking to find just some shred of fulfillment, some shred of security, or even uh, right acceptance within her community, relationship after relationship after relationship, five husbands, and then the one she's with is not even her husband. And Jesus came and sat down beside her. And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And when a man spent his entire life exploiting his fellow countrymen, Jesus came to him and said in Luke 19, 5 through 10, and when Jesus came to that place, to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when he saw it, or but when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The man who spent his entire life exploiting his countrymen. Like whatever side of the political aisle you're on, oh, those bad guys on the other side. And now you find that your Lord and Savior is inviting your political enemy into to go and hang out with him. Careful if you're drawing a kingdom line that's so drastic that you don't make any room for the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom lines here... They're very arbitrary. And those boundary lines are moved sometimes just to trick us. But he didn't come to to wreck this guy. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And when the woman was caught in adultery and everyone else was demanding judgment, he came to her defense. Let him who is without sin among you throw the first stone. And when they all left, he said to her there in John 8, verse 10 through 12, Woman, 
Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When people have been so broken by the corruption that's in the world, plagued by sickness and even death, Jesus comes to them and says in John 5 eight, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. Mark 5.41, then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Matthew 8.3, Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy left him. And when they had so wickedly rejected him, requesting a robber in his place, and when they had mocked him and beaten him and spit on him, he said, in Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Listen, it's not our works that saves us. If it's our works that saves us, every single person on that list that we just saw had no shot because they'd already blown it. They were already too far gone. It's not by any good thing that we have done. It is only by his mercy. Titus 3, 5 and 6, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So let's think back to the miracles that we've been seeing Jesus do here in John. There was nothing in the water that could have made it one. There was nothing in the fish or the loaves that could have made them multiply themselves. There was nothing in the water that could have supported a man's weight. And there was nothing in that three-mile distance that could have made it cross itself. These were miracles of nature Miracles of a change of nature. And there's nothing in you. Nothing. Nothing in you that can make you new. Because you have a nature problem. You got a nature problem. You can take a chicken. In fact, they used to define in ancient philosophy, they'd say, well, what is man? And say, well, that which walks on two legs and has skin. And so I think it was Plato had a chicken plucked down to just skin. Behold, man. No. Even when you pluck that thing and you take it out into the dirt, you can put a bow tie on it, put a little backpack on it, give it a cell phone. You know what it's going to do? It's going to scratch the dirt and it's going to peck at the ground. 
because there's something in that chicken that makes it a chicken. It's its nature. You can take a pig and give it a bath and put deodorant under each of its legs. Put makeup all over it and a big blonde wig. <laughs> Be like, yeah. Send it on dates with a frog. But you know what? It's going to go right back to rolling in its mire. It's a pig. It's in its nature. And there's something in you that from the day you were born, nobody had to teach you to be selfish. You just suddenly came out of the womb incredibly selfish. Nobody ever taught you to lie, but you suddenly became so good at it. Because there's something in your nature that's fallen. It's separated from God. This is all of us. And it's that part of your nature that there's nothing in it that's going to change itself. There's nothing in the nature of you that can make you new. So your only part. What works must we do to work the work of God? <laughs> Here's the work of God. Believe. Believe that he can. Believe that he wants to. The work of God is to believe on the one that he sent. Whoa, wait, wait, wait. And that sound a lot like the John 3.16 thing? God so loved the world that he gave his only son? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Doesn't it sound like what he just said? Labor not for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to everlasting life, which I give a free gift. This is a miracle of a change of nature. And in him, he has given to us great and precious promises. That by these, we're not only set free from that old man, but we become partakers of the divine nature. This is the work of God. Believe on him who he sent. Believe. Believe.